Hi, and welcome to Episode 5 of Pillsbury's Industry Insights Podcast. I am Joel Simon, a finance partner at the international law firm Pillsbury Winthrop Shaw Pittman. We hope from wherever you're listening, you are safe and healthy. Today, I'm joined by Matt Orsman, who heads up Pillsbury's international public policy practice. Matt advises governments, political leaders, businesses, and NGOs on designing and implementing legal and policy solutions, including managing integrated U.S. and Europe-based initiatives. Matt is also a featured speaker on Pillsbury's Washington Weekly Briefing every Wednesday at noon. Hey, thank you for inviting me today, Joel. Matt, I have to tell you, I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. You're our first guest with a European perspective on what's happening around the globe. Maybe you can start us off by giving us the state of play on major stimulus and response efforts so far. Sure, and I'm very happy to do that, Joel. I think what I'd like to do um, with that question is kind of compare and contrast what we're seeing between the United States, uh, the UK, and Europe. Um, you know, three similarly situated uh, Western governments with similar uh, infrastructure in, t- in place for stimulus programs um, and supporting uh, rescue efforts. The U.S., as we've seen, and, and I think some previous uh, guests have discussed this, really focuses on the CARES Act. That's the major U.S. stimulus initiative that brings together several different loan programs uh, and stimulus programs for businesses large and small. And then um, there's been a huge amount of Fed support for the debt market. This is everything from buying effectively junk bonds on the primary market, on the secondary market to keep things afloat, supporting the muni market, and um, supporting the uh, buying assets from lenders who want to unload these you know, riskier assets so they can then have more capital to lend out um, as part of these stimulus efforts. So a pretty broad brush uh, approach at different in different sectors at different sort of sizes of, of companies um, and including the checks that are going right to people to support un- unemployment issues or, or, or to stimulate spending. Now it's, but I want to compare that to the UK system, where the US has pumped in a ton of money, but through a lot of very complicated procedures. So a lot of great work for lawyers and all our colleagues, but at the same time, uh, it has been pretty complicated. The UK system has, process has not been as much money by any means. I mean, the size of the economies you know, underscore that, but the process has been a lot easier. And the primary one um, is what's been known as the furlough, furloughing. It's a term that was really never used in the UK that we're familiar with in the US. Um, and effectively what that's allowing companies to do who don't have a reason to keep employees around during the shutdown is to let them go and pay them 80% of the salary. And then 80% of that is reimbursed by the UK government. Made very simple process, very simple paperwork. Um, and it's allowed money the, the companies to front the money to the employees who have been temporarily, uh, what we say, laid off, and on the other hand, um, get that money back easily from the UK gov. And, and it also, I think, shows a little bit of difference in our systems because obviously one of the major concerns in the US is healthcare costs, where in the UK, because of the National Health Service and public healthcare, the, those who have been laid off don't have that concern. So really, it's giving them enough funds to pay their rents, pay their mortgages, you know, buy food, and, and sort of 
hover until the reopening. There's also been low interest loans for a small medium sized business, as well as some, you know, very good loan programs for some of the larger companies, similar to the U.S., where they're buying, uh, the, the government's buying commercial paper from. Now, just to pivot over to the EU, the EU program is probably on economic terms on, on par with, uh, what the U.S. is doing, though I think it's a toss up on whether it's as efficient, um, because some things are just being done at the EU level. Some things are being done at the nation state level, the, you know, whether you're talking about France, Germany, Spain, Czech Republic, or otherwise. Um, and a number of things are being done by the European Central Bank in a coordinated, coordinated way, similar to what the Fed is doing. Um, and similar to the Fed program, the ECB has a lot more firepower in its, at its disposal than the sort of normal budgets and treasuries of the EU and the member nations. So the ECB announced that they're rolling out even more liquidity, uh, keeping interest rates well to negative territory for uh, the banks that lend in all the different countries, loosening up liquidity rules, uh, continue to asset purchases, really pumping money into the EU system, or at least making money available for to keep the economies afloat. In parallel, the EU is pumped about $3.4, $3.5 trillion into a whole host of programs. Some of these are done at the nation states where you have uh, backstopping loan programs, similar to what you see in the UK. Um, there's $600 billion in fiscal stimulus coming as well, and this is monies that can be effectively transferred down from the EU to the nation states uh, to draw on and, and spend. Now, one of the big debates here in Europe, and you may have seen it, is around the so-called Corona bonds. And this was an instrument that a lot of the most affected European countries, particularly those in Southern Europe, who really had to shut down, think about Italy and Spain, wanted to issue a pan-European bond that where the proceeds would be used for the, for stimulus and for, for recovery. The Northern European states, you know, I think Germany and, and uh, Denmark and, and just going to be the Netherlands, they are against it. They didn't want to transfer, basically pay for, have their citizens pay for uh, the bonds um, that, that would benefit the South. So instead, they're using an internal European mechanism that are booked as loans, uh, similar to what the Greek bailout was. We'll see. This is an evolving story. We'll see how this plays out. There is more and more money coming out of the EU as time passes. But the, the big debate is how to make sure it gets to those in need as opposed to those who contributed those funds. Because there is a big, much greater need down in the Southern Europe than there is in Northern Europe. It's interesting seeing the variety of responses uh, and the treatment of different constituencies. So so one thing that would be interesting, Matt, is if you could talk about a specific European initiative in light of, in light of all of that. Um, in particular, I'd be interested to hear about the EU Green Deal, uh, which had a lot of momentum earlier in the year, but seemed to have hit a giant snag um, when COVID-19 hit. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, exactly. So the, the new EU commission that came in at the start of the year made their signature program over the next five years, the so-called EU Green Deal. And this was really putting a lot of money and time and bureaucracy and effort and policy into hitting an EU target of being carbon neutral by 2050. They targeted that this program would basically drive about a trillion dollars worth of spending on green initiatives, carbonizing Europe. Um, in reality, it's probably a couple hundred billion of pure EU money and the rest 
through various instruments and incentives, but since serious money. And it was designed so that every policy choice that the EU did, made, every expenditure the EU uh, focused on was how do we take carbon out of the EU system? And this was really groundbreaking. This was the first major trading bloc uh, group of nations or semi-sovereign entity to do this way ahead of where the U.S. is and way ahead of most. Um, and I think the, the strategic thinkers realized this was a chance for EU to actually have something to be lead on and uh, create, frankly, products and goods and policies that could be sold and marketed around the world as, as everyone else wakes up to the need uh, to, to decarbonize. All this was gearing up just as COVID-19 hit. And so uh, things are kind of stuck in the mud in terms of what the, what this means for policy. One of the challenges and one of the mantras we're hearing uh, a lot of is the so-called you know, build back better, which is, you know, as monies are being made available to either address the, to address the impact of COVID-19, to re-stimulate the economies, you know, there's a big push among thinkers and policymakers to figure out how we can use the money in such a way that kills two birds with one stone. It, it, it rebuilds these economies, but at the same time starts driving everything in the direction of decarbonization. And the first big test is going to come when the EU does its new budget, which is really going to be the budget for stimulus and pandemic response. And if this has various green initiatives baked into it, I think that'll mean things are back on track. But there is, of course, a push to water down, particularly from the countries that have industries that are not green, but they need them to come back. Um, and you'll see this fight, uh, things like agriculture, coal, even you know, the oil, you know, oil producing countries, you know, even aviation's uh, situation on the, on the table. It'll be interesting to see if there's any lasting positive effect on the environment, because I know that um, emissions are down all over the world uh, as a result of uh, shutdowns and, and slowdowns in the economy. So uh, I guess stay tuned on that. One, one last point, if you could touch on uh, briefly, Matt, is um, if there's any sort of high points that, that you have regarding how this is affecting emerging markets, uh, that would be great. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, just on your prior point, there was an article that came in the FT talking about how you're seeing higher spikes of cases of COVID-19 in, in, in cities where they have really bad air quality. And I think that's had an impact on people's pulmonary so you, function. So you're really seeing uh, this interlinking of environment and, and pandemic response and, and the different tool, you know, causes and effects. I mean, on emerging markets, this is going to be the big question, right? Particularly, I'm spending a lot of time looking at Africa, where by and large, it is, its health systems are not ready for a massive pandemic. It's kind of in an early analysis looking like it may get a lucky break where things were shut down earlier in particular a few countries, but there hasn't been high numbers. That being said, the testing data is not be relied on. So we really don't know. But this is going to put a huge damper in emerging market investments, um, and I, I think particularly in Africa, where it's, investors are going to be very uncertain at this moment whether COVID-19 will shut down the economies for a chunk of time and for how long. There's too many unknowns. And particularly if you're looking at a project that requires a large labor force or close uh, quarters operation, you know, say manufacturing or mining uh, or anything in the extractive industry, you know, or things with supply chains where, you know, 
one one break of cultural problems in agriculture. These are going to be real problems with the the investor community, the, the kind of aid community that supports these investments, um, are kind of holding their breath to see which way this goes. It's also having an impact on tourism. Obviously, a lot of these econ- emerging economies, both Africa, but you know Latin America, Southeast Asia, and elsewhere, you know, huge amounts of their GDP are tied to tourism. Only 10% in many cases, even higher in others. The pandemic uh, that's shut, you know, shutting down air travel, that's shutting down hotels and restaurants, et cetera, is going to have a huge impact on the economies here. And there's a big question, you know, things actually I'm personally working on, on some interesting projects around sustainable tourism. And as, as things build back, how do you ensure that the next wave of tourism leaves more money in the economy so they stay resilient? But at the very macro level, you're looking at you know, some countries where 10 to 20% of GDP is going to be wiped out of the equation, at least for the next year. So that just puts much, much more pressure on other sectors. And because other sectors are becoming depressed, there really isn't sort of engines of economic growth anymore. So tricky times for sure in the emerging markets. And, and what, you know, those of us who care about emerging markets are really hoping is that the Western countries, those, you know, those who have the resources, don't just fight their own problems and move on and then forget about everybody else who kind of gets us to the next wave. Um, and that those resources, these global financial resources are made available to everybody because obviously if, if the pandemic stays in one large geographic pocket, it can re-spread too. So there's a lot of self-interest here to, to make sure that everybody around the world has the ability to not only fight the pandemic, but uh, regain economic strength. Those are great points, Matt, and thanks for that whirlwind tour around the globe. Uh, It's been great speaking with you today. My pleasure, and thanks for having me. And now it's time for This Week in History. This week's selection is an easy one. We celebrate two different days for the same person, Dr. Edward Jenner, a country doctor from the town of Berkeley in Gloucestershire, England. He was born on May 17, 1749, and three days shy of his 47th birthday on May 14, 1796, He administered the first inoculation ever to treat smallpox, a vaccine that he invented. So today, we're looking for a 21st century Dr. Jenner to emerge and help wipe out COVID-19. And we hope that person hurries along. To all of you tuning in, thank you for listening to Pillsbury Industry Insights Podcast.